Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. I'll be reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, eternal Word to us. Father, help me unpack... Repeat, say in different words, bring clarity to the intended meaning that Paul had in his mind and that he dictated here as your holy apostle. Cause us to see it. Cause us to love it. Cause us to be energized and propelled on in our walk because of it, to the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus came into the world to suffer and to die and to rise from the dead in order to build His church. He did not come to save one person. That was an impossibility, actually. He planned salvation before the world was ever created and knew exactly the end goal of what will transpire. He did not come to save one person. He came with a huge goal. To build from many persons a huge structure a temple stone by stone a temple that God would now and for all eternity dwell in he came to build a body with many parts a church And this means that He came to create living interconnectedness between sinners who are being saved by Jesus. That they would be, by the Lord, fitted together like the person who is the master builder of a temple. That they would be so interconnected that together they are the temple, singular, of the Lord. 
And that that would be happening throughout the generations from Jesus' first coming until He comes again. And it will continue on then also. Those words, I contend, that I have just spoken are the authoritative words of God Almighty. See, our text this morning also raises the question that every one of us must answer. What is the authority that you rest your life upon? What is the worldview that guides how you live your life? How you make choices? Why you turn left and not right? Why you go straight instead of stop? Is the worldview, is the authority of your life some vague idea of watered-down Christianity? Or is it the authoritative Word of God delivered by Jesus' personally sent apostles and prophets? Is that the foundation of your Life. We live in a day when many people need to ask themselves the question, does my worldview, does my idea of Christianity rest upon a preacher? A school of thought that tickles my ears, that lets me go through life, sleep at night thinking, I'm in Christ, I am okay, even though... The way I live my life shouts, I do not know Him. Let me illustrate that little dynamic and the difference just for a moment. By quoting from an article that John Piper wrote this last week to get a taste. Quote, In my first year in the pastorate, I told a young woman who was committing fornication that if she didn't repent and turn to Jesus, she would go to hell. She was not happy with that theology. Later, she accepted it. I did her wedding, and for 20 years, she wrote me at Christmas to say, thank you for the warning. Here's the kicker. No one had ever told her that growing up in the Christian church. He goes on. Then there was a married woman who came to me and confessed she was having an affair. She said her husband found out and wondered what to do. She was a member of the church. She let me know that among the options, breaking off the affair was not one of them. Well, I said in my simple manner, if you don't repent and turn from this sin and turn to Jesus for forgiveness, you will go to hell. This time, the blowback was an articulate no way with an exegetical defense and the approval 
of her former pastor. She took me to Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39. And here was her paraphrase of it. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, including principalities and powers. And that means the devil. And when the devil lures me into adultery, that cannot separate me from God and heaven. The pastor said so. As I recall, we spent the next 15 minutes or so looking at the text to see who the us in that passage cannot separate us is. She did not like what she saw as we walked together through Romans 8, noticing who it is that will be glorified with Jesus. But evidently, it touched a nerve. She ditched her affair. She reconciled with her husband. She avoided excommunication and stayed at the church. For the next 30 years. End quote. What authority before were these women resting their life upon? What authority guides your life? This passage this morning is about the Savior. It is about the cornerstone of the building that each genuine Christian is being built upon and from. It is about a real, dynamic, life-intruding relationship with the Lord Jesus. And the passage is about how Jesus guides and instructs and corrects through the words on paper. The words of the apostles and the prophets that we have. And most importantly in this passage this morning is that it's about Christ taking each Person whom He has called, whom He has saved, and placing them into His community, the church, the spiritual house of God on earth today. And thus, by implication, this passage is a warning to those who think they are Christians without Christ's body, without a commitment to Christ's church without themselves being built together with others who have been spiritually raised from the dead to new life in Christ also. So, let's go to the text and see if it bears those statements out. Ephesians chapter 2. We're picking up in verse 19. Notice, verse 19 begins with the words, so then, or therefore. In other words, what Paul is doing here is saying now, the consequences of what I have just said in verses 11 to 18, the consequences are our text this morning, verses 19 
to 22. And what he said in verses 11 to 18, in summary, is essentially God is taking from among the two peoples, Jews and all the rest called Gentiles, and saving from among them by Jesus' blood and thus constructing a new people. One new man. Okay. Now verse 19. So then, the consequences of that doctrine, of that gospel, my dear non-Jewish Gentile believers, is this. You are no longer strangers and aliens. Now, remember, back in verse 11, they were, they were at a time not part of God's people. Not part of His covenant. They were without hope and without God from Abraham for 1,700 years until Christ. But He says, not any longer. Read it. But you are fellow citizens. Okay. In Rome, there are lots of non-citizens in the empire, and there are citizens, and there are different privileges. And they know the language he's using. He says, there is nothing superior of the Jews who came before you into Christ. You are joint, equal citizens with them. Non-Jews being saved by Jesus. And then Paul changes the analogy and says, and you are members of the household of God. God's family. You belong to it. You Gentiles. This is, we don't really get it, but this is stunning. You Gentiles in Asia Minor. You can take your fellow Jewish friend from the same town you grew up in. You can take that Jew, Peter's, or James, Jesus' brother's, hand. And together close your eyes and pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallow your name. This is stunning theology. If you understood the content. Of the time. That's what he's saying. Paul's saying that we sinners who got born again, whether we are black or white or purple or green or brown, whether we were prostitutes or extremely religious, raised in Islam or Buddhism or secularism or the so-called Christian church or a glorious Christian family, we who have been born again, Jew or Gentile, male or female, are all one family. And there is a genetic spiritual pool that we all share and it runs through the heart of all who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God and it connects those human beings from all walks of life and all different cultures and it connects them in a deeply profound familial family way. He says it's a household. It's God's household. And that family wants to be around each other. They want to worship 
together. They want to have family meetings and discuss family business. The Word of God with one another. These that Paul has in mind in, in this text, these are not church attenders. This is about being the church. And then notice, in verse 20, Paul says how they became part of God's family. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. Now, I don't know which translation you have. I think the New American translates it more accurately or woodenly saying, having been. It's a participle. And so when that participle is used, having been, what do you mean? He means it's causal. He means because you have been built on this foundation. That's why you're in the family. In other words, Paul says here, the way you became a part of the family, and the analogy he's going to go to now, the temple, the structure that the Lord Jesus is building of all the saved persons, the way that happened with any of you is that you have been built upon the foundation. The foundation that God already laid, and now you're built on top of it. And the foundation is the apostles and prophets. And most importantly, the man, the God-man, Christ Jesus Himself. Because you're in Him. You've been born again. I'm going to come back to the foundation in a few minutes. I just want to move on through the text and now watch this before we come back to that foundation. So that we can first see and look at the temple that Paul says that is built upon that sturdy foundation. Verse 21. In whom, that means Christ, is the context, in Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So Paul here, he's pointing to the temple in Jerusalem, particularly to the inner sanctuary where God's Shekinah glory, His presence would manifest itself. Yes, God is omnipresent, but He is not present everywhere. In that way. Okay? So that's what he's pointing to. Like in Solomon's temple, finally finished the dedication. Do you remember? And then the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the people could not stand because of the, the, the kavod, the heaviness of the glory of the Lord. So Paul's got that imagery in his head. And here he says, the church not church buildings. They didn't have any. He means the people gathered together are that 
temple. He's saying, disgusting sinners like you who have been plucked out of darkness. That He has taken you and made you a stone with another stone that is hewed and sanctified and worked upon and fits together with other stones constructing one temple. Or as he says in verse 22, in Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place of or for God in the Spirit. Those persons, whether they are gathering together outdoors under some shanty in a village in Africa, singing and dancing, yes, cultures are different, of their love for Jesus, or whether they're gathering in what we call a church building with stained glass windows, and if you put it on the market, you get $10 million for it. Or if they're meeting in a rented facility on a school campus, or in a living room. Paul is saying, those persons gathered together are the dwelling place, the temple. Of God. You don't go to church. You together are the church. Now, I'm just going to hope. If I need to later, I'll do it. But words are always used in context. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to assume we're smart enough to get what I'm saying now. Therefore, in that context, there is no place for the present day idea of being a church attender. It's just not there in the New Testament. Read it again carefully, verses 21 and 22. In whom the whole structure being joined together, it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. He says, we are being presently fitted together. By the master builder. Yeah, I thought there's only animal, vegetable, and mineral. And he has mineral here in mind. He's got Solomon's temple in mind. He's talking about rocks and stones, but it grows. We are living stones. In First Kings, which is clearly in Paul's mind, It's where we read in the construction of Solomon's temple 
They were not allowed to do the work of the stones individually, the banging, the cutting and the noise on the temple mount, but outside in the rock quarry and let them finish them there and then cart them into the temple site and then let the master builder place them and fit them together in the construction of the temple. Those stones, as those artisans worked on them out in the rock quarry, the exact size they need to be, sanded and smoothed and placed and ready to go, were of not much value. Alone. But the rock stands up and speaks. I asked Jesus into my heart. I do my own thing. I go to churches. I'm an attender. I do services at times. But this is about my personal relationship with Jesus. Meaning alone and only. That would be like that huge boulder turned into a stone just sits outside of the temple mount. Alone. Jesus didn't come for that reason. He came to build with those stones a temple, the dwelling place of God, a bride, a church, a body. The way he puts it in 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Those stones, those persons are fitted together. And thus they are the dwelling place. Of the Holy Spirit. On earth. Wow. Don't ever. Take Jesus' temple. Lightly. We'll come back again to that. Now I want to go back to the foundation. Verse 20. Because the question is, there's the structure Paul has. Will that huge temple stand? Not when the earth moves. Unless there is a solid foundation. See, we know how to build here in America now. you got money to build. we got codes to build. In Haiti, they didn't. And everything came crumbling down. Eight years ago, whenever that was. What's the foundation of the structure of God's people? It's verse 20. Because you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Let's first look at the first one. 
the structure of the church or the temple, the dwelling place of God on earth, the foundation of it is the apostles. That's the Greek word, apostolos. You can come right over to English, apostle. The New Testament to create the word. The word means essentially a, a messenger. I'm sending you outward to bring my message. You represent me like an ambassador represents the President of the United States. I speak on behalf of the United States in this country. You're sent out. That's what the basic word means. But it's used in a couple of different ways in the New Testament. And the way that Paul uses it here. Wait a minute. There are those who are apostles and they're the foundation. What he is referring to are those who are very personally sent by Jesus. They are the apostles of Jesus Christ. They have been encountered by Jesus after His death. In Jesus' resurrection body, and He commissioned them as His Apostles. So, let's go back. You know the way that this word starts even during Jesus' ministry, before His death, before His resurrection. We know that out of hundreds and hundreds of disciples, at least by that time, He chose twelve. Luke 6.13 we read, And when day came... Jesus called His disciples and chose from them twelve, whom He named apostles. Now, one of the twelve was Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus and then He committed suicide. Now you're down to eleven. And so, Luke tells us in chapter 1 of Acts, there's about 120 gathered before the day of Pentecost. Peter says, look, i got something to say. we got some business to do. And I pick it up. Peter talking. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John... Until the day when Jesus was taken up from us after his resurrection. Talking about now his ascension. So we're talking about there's got to be some of these guys who were there and ate with Jesus in his resurrection with us. And Jesus, they saw him. They're eyewitnesses. Okay. So we got to pick from one of them. When Jesus was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so they chose to take Judas' place, Matthias. Now you're back to twelve apostles. Okay. Look, we, everyone here knows well enough, right? There's 27 New Testament writings. Almost half of them, 13 of them, are written by a guy named Paul, who always refers to himself as an apostle. So I'm not going to waste time going through all that. He argues throughout his letters at times, of, I have the signs of an apostle. Okay. The 
some of the original twelve, Peter, James, and J- Peter, and John, not James, we'll get there in a minute, recognize this reality, okay, etc. But I just want to go to one text first, where Paul rehearses, because here's the deal, he's not one of the twelve. Not only that, after the church is initially planted on the day of Pentecost and on, it's at six months, maybe even a year that whole time, Paul is the biggest antagonist to the Jesus message, to the church. He's a persecutor of it. He's, some of these people have died because of him and been imprisoned because of him. And then Paul, before King Agrippa, years later rehashes what happened to him on the Damascus Road. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise And stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. In order to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me. And to those in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from your people, the Jews, and from the Gentiles. To whom I, Jesus, am sending you. And so when Paul writes to the Galatians, he writes to them, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through the agency of any man, not sent from the Jerusalem apostles, but an apostle directly through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. Okay. And I can go on and on with Paul in the New Testament. But, well, now you got 13. So what's happening? Well, then Luke tells us in Acts chapter 14, verse 14, Paul Barnabas and their gang are on their first missionary journey. And then Luke says this. But when the apostles, notice it's plural. When the apostles, Barnabas and Paul. Okay, Barnabas isn't one of the twelve. But Barnabas was there at the get-go in Jerusalem. Most likely was a disciple of Jesus. And met Jesus in his resurrection. And now at this point, I'm going to assume Jesus pointed Barnabas. This is, I got, I got something for you. It's going to happen one day. And did it. And Luke recognizes him on a par with Paul as an apostle. Okay? Alright? Then you got Jesus' brothers. Those are not one of the twelve at all. Either Judas nor James. His brothers weren't even following him. They, they, they thought he was half out of his mind. And then Paul writes this, numbers of years later. And when I went to Jerusalem, I did see Peter. I was there for two weeks, and I hung out with the Apostle Peter. 
And I did not see any of the other apostles. Except James, the Lord's brother. So there, James is an apostle. Okay, but not one of the twelve. And there's this little line that Paul has in 1 Corinthians 9 with, you know, Barnabas and I, we don't have the right to do this, we don't have the right to do that. And then that, that, that one real testy one. Do we not have a right to take along a Christian sister as our wife? Like the other apostles and Peter and Jesus' brothers. Plural. So, Paul writes then in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 4 to 9. In Christ He was buried, and we preach that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that then Jesus in His resurrection appeared to Peter. We, we have those accounts in the Gospels. And then to the twelve. What do you mean twelve? Judas is dead. Well, Matthias was there. Okay. All right. So to the twelve, and then he appeared to James. That's Jesus' brother, not James, son of Zebedee. And then to all the apostles. Wait a minute. He appeared to the twelve, and then he appeared to all the apostles. If you ask me, that's strong evidence. Paul clearly means there other apostles that are not of the twelve which is part of being an apostle of Jesus, you must have been encountered by Him in His resurrection and been commissioned by Him. And then he goes on, And last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So what are these? At the core, the uniqueness of the apostolic ministry, which does not exist today in this sense, is that they were encountered by Jesus after His death, in His physical, glorified, changed humanity, the resurrection, and commissioned personally as His sent one. And those persons, as you read in John when he's talking to the apostles and the Holy Spirit is so important to this ministry because this is what puts these guys on a par with Moses, Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet speaking infallibly the word of the Lord. They are Jesus' personal revelatory Mouthpieces. To give the goods of the meaning, the implication, and the unfolding of the entire Christ event of the first century. In other words, they received special revelation from God through the Holy Spirit in order that they could understand and grasp the mystery of 
Jesus Christ and of all its meaning of what He did and its implications and its outworkings. That was given supernaturally by revelation. That is not at all what my office as a pastor teacher is. My office as a pastor teacher is not to say, speak to me so that I can get information that I couldn't know otherwise. My office as a pastor teacher is to take the revelation he gave to the foundation of the church, the apostles here, and be honest with it. And say, see it. It's been given to us. See, that's what they were. This is why Paul argues this way in the contentious letter of Galatians. When he says this, Galatians, because they're being lied to from some false teachers. Okay? They're being lied to. And Paul says, look, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that I preached to you is not man's gospel. What he means is, I did not go to Jerusalem and sit down under the twelve original apostles and say, tell me everything you need to know. That's what I do. That's what Joe LeMay does. But tell me what I need to do and say, and I took it to you on the missionary journey. He says, no. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's his argument. He's on a par with Moses. He is a revelatory, meaning God says, I have revelation, I'm given to the world, and I'm given it, in this case right here, through you, Paul, Peter. Matthew, John. Okay. okay. And let me just one more then at this point. And so that's why Paul then, I want you to listen carefully how he argues this by the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 2. But we, don't get lost, he doesn't mean we Christians. No, he means we apostles. We, the foundation church here in the early Christianity in the first few decades. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. These things God has revealed to us Apostles, through the Holy Spirit. Now, he goes on, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but we have received the Spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And thus what? So that we, apostles then, impart this. What we got from God. 
We impart it in words. And not taught by human wisdom, but words taught by the Holy Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. We are like Moses and Jeremiah. On the other side of the cross, as the resurrected God-man's personal emissaries with the revelation to found the church. That's his argument. And to really see this again, look at your text. If you're there in Ephesians 2, just continue to read for a little bit. Where we left off. Chapter 3, verse 1. He writes, For this reason I, Paul... A prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is what? How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly. And when you read what I have written, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy Apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And so it is that second word, prophets, that's somewhat, for me, troubling. Let's go back to verse 20 of chapter 2. We hear the same thing. Paul says, here's the foundation that you're built upon. You're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. It says, the foundation is not just the apostles, but and prophets. It says both. And contextually, everyone agrees that Paul does not mean here Old Testament prophets. Like Isaiah. Moses, Jeremiah, David. He doesn't mean that. But he, because in the context of Ephesians, he's referring to the same group that we just saw. And look at it again. Just jump down a couple of verses to chapter 3, verse 5. The revelation, the mystery that's revealed by the Spirit, right? To His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. 
But the word now, noon, is there in the text. As it has now, in the first century, been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then, of course, in chapter 4, when Jesus ascends on high, he gives gifts and he distinguishes. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, pastor teachers, what to do. All right, so let me, let me offer first how, because most of you know him and who he is, how Wayne Grudem wants to translate this passage. Grudem argues that what Paul is saying here is that the foundation is the apostles who prophesy. Or the apostles who are prophets or a prophetic ministry or something like that. In other words, he says it's not two groups here, it's the same group. That's his conclusion. And the way he goes about arguing, say, look, when you look into the New Testament, for instance, at the gift of prophecy, like would be happening just within the church, gathered together, right? First Corinthians twelve, fourteen, first Thessalonians five, you know, Mary Jo prophesies and then Billy prophesies and, and there's for encouragement in the church, Grudem argues that when you're talking about that gift of prophecy, that's not at all the same thing as those who are in the office of a prophetic ministry like the apostles. But he would argue that the gift of prophecy is not at all analogous to Jeremiah or to Moses or to David but it is a fallible gift as much as a pastor teaching every Sunday morning is a fallible gift. You don't assume the pastor spoke, he's in the office of a teacher, that he's right by definition because he cannot speak false things. Yes, he can. I can even look at text, do my best to try to understand it and get it wrong. And it filters through my own personality and everything else. And it just, it just, it's just, it's not infallible. I deal with what is infallible, the Word of God. But by the time it comes out of my mouth, don't treat those two as the same. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, well, Grudem argues that's essentially what the New Testament gift of prophecy is too. And I agree with him. For instance, when Paul says in First Thessalonians... Chapter 5, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. And hold fast to what is good and get rid of what's bad. Do that with pastor's teaching. You do it with prophecies. You test it. Well, he would never say that about Jeremiah. He would never say that about his own authoritative teaching. Oh, by the way, all kinds of stuff I probably said, you know, is wrong and bad. So test it and figure out what that is and throw it away. He wouldn't say that. So in the New Testament, even Paul puts his gifts to prophecy far under the authority of the apostolic ministry. Okay. 
I also agree with Goodman on that idea of prophecy. Now, here's the deal, though. When it comes to chapter 2, verse 20 of Ephesians, grammatically and syntactically, it is a really big stretch to say Paul means apostles who prophesy or who are prophets. And he tries to make an argument. You can once in a while see where the word chai can maybe refer to that. It's exegetical apostles, that is, who are prophets or something like that. But it's so rare in Paul's wording, just as the foundation is the apostles and, the word chai, and prophets. But then you go to chapter 4 in the same letter, and Paul clearly distinguishes there. Right? Jesus gave apostles. And he gave prophets. Okay? And gave evangelists. Okay? So I just, I, I disagree with Grudem. And so we're left with, the text says, the foundation of the temple, the foundation of the church is the apostles. And So, I say this so you can hear it. When I am cocksure of stuff, uh, I let you know. And even I can still be wrong about that. You see, the see, I did that little thing in my mouth. You can tell. Okay, this is where I'm at. This is my best shot at it. Okay, I'm saying, what is he referring to here? What are these prophets he's referring to that seem to be the foundation along with the apostles? Okay, so let me start again with what I just said. That when in the New Testament, when that, that gift of prophecy is fallible. And that when he talks about the gift of prophecy operating within the church, it is very different, this is, where I'm, this is what I think he means, than those who were in the office of prophet in the New Testament. And that in the New Testament, the office of prophet... According to Paul here, it just seems to be they were, that group was so closely in line with the apostles that together they are the foundation of the church. That everything I said about an apostle, where those things are revealed by the Spirit, well, Paul says it very clearly in chapter 3 of Ephesians, to the apostles and the prophets. They also, like an apostle, are guided by the Holy Spirit in the foundational work of the church. And so, these prophets, in the first century, like the apostles, had a type of prophetic ministry that is analogous to Jeremiah. Or to the apostles. Where by the Holy Spirit. They are made known. To them. The infallible meaning. Of the gospel. The outworkings of the gospel. The implications of the doctrines of Christ. I just want to look at one verse. And I'll comment on it. And we'll move on. Luke writes in Acts 13. And if you know, you know your Bible, this is before Paul 
and Barnabas ever went on any missionary journey. Okay? Or apostolic journey. Before they ever sent Jesus, remember, He made Paul His apostle to the Gentiles. So they're in the mixed Gentile-Jewish church in Antioch that had been established long before Paul got there. And Luke writes in chapter 13, verse 1 of Acts, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. And he names five. Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, or Paul. Okay, question. You can, be, you can take it different ways. Does Paul mean that Barnabas and Saul or Paul are only teachers and not prophets? I'm just going to tell you, I really doubt it here. Does he mean all five are prophets and teachers? I think probably. So if you just assume that for a minute, right or wrong, just assume it. At that point... Barnabas, I mean, Luke has no problem referring to Barnabas and Paul in the office of a prophet. They're revelatory spokespersons. Also, Manian and Lucius and Simeon. He didn't have a problem with that. Then right after this, when Barnabas and Saul, by the Holy Spirit, are set apart to go on the first missionary journey to the regions of Galatia and all those churches, they do, and they're referred to as apostles. Because they're in the apostolic ministry. They're sending out with the message to where they're supposed to go. Not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And they're called apostles. So let's just say, for, for in Luke's mind, all five of these guys have this revelatory foundational work that Jesus assigned to them. And He has appeared to all five of these guys. And they're called prophets. And let's then Paul and Barnabas go on their apostolic ministry. They're clearly not just prophets. They're apostles sent out. And maybe Simeon stayed there for the rest of his life. Or Lucius from northern Africa, Cyrene. He's in Antioch. He's there. He's never going to apostolic ministry, but he's in an office of a prophet within the church where he stays. In the founding of the church. Okay, that's be- I don't know if that's the best I Not so good, okay. Alright. So, let's go back. Context, wrap it up. What's Paul doing here? He asserts to the readers, you non-Jewish Christians are built upon the apostles and prophets. Meaning, that their membership in God's people securely rests on the accurate foundation. It rests on the true foundational teaching of Jesus' apostles and prophets, meaning Jesus' divine revelation given through them. He's telling them, 
You are truly part of God's building. His temple erected on the right foundation. And he says, you all know this because you've been born again. Because you are in relationship with the resurrected Jesus. Let me read it all together. That's how I interpret it. You've been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. That's the first stone. Everything goes off of the cornerstone. If it's placed wrong, the whole building, the whole foundation goes wrong. You have been born again. You're in Christ. You're connected to Him, is what He's saying. The apostolic message came to you. You heard the Gospel. And then Jesus raised you spiritually from the dead. And you are in union with the cornerstone, Christ. And together, you people have been growing and maturing through the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. They have given you the divine guidance, elaborated on the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection truly and by the Holy Spirit. You are solidly structured is His temple. Don't let any Jew in the first century come and tell you otherwise. That's Paul's point. So, I can't close there. My wife said I couldn't. So what does all this mean for us now in today's present atmosphere of the church world? First, It means that it is a travesty that millions of people think in terms of attending church instead of being the church. We attend movie theaters. We attend ball games. And so many attend this church, that church, or attend numbers of churches. 60% of Sundays, maybe 40, depending, you know, on how good the weather is and whether their friend wants to do a bike ride or something. You see, people, they attend church hoping that the program will make me feel good and it'll be an enjoyable experience and that I can leave that day happy I went. I mean, that's why I want to go to the movies and spend my money there. I want to go to the movies and be miserable. Don't go see that movie. And it's almost indistinguishable. We have, in our day, constructed program-based Christianity that causes many people to think that this is the Christian life as opposed to being built together with other believers into the temple 
the household of God. Second, Ephesians chapter 2 indicts Christians for choosing their church based upon the mentality of a consumer. Instead of the mentality of being built together with others in the local congregation through hard work, through being corrected, through being rebuked and encouraged by each other, through teaching and praying together and acts of serving one another and through difficult interpersonal relationships, all of which things the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came to build His church, to construct a temple, uses in His constructing the dwelling place. But instead, many, they shop around to see which program-based church meets my immediate consumer felt needs. I found it. I like this one. I go away every Sunday after the pastor gives his speech and I feel really good. That's the church for me. We found the place to State-of-the-art nursery. And we know we worship our children, so that's what we pick our church by. We go there. The program. You can, man, you've got camping, you've got hiking. There are so many fun things to do. I found my church. I wouldn't probably say it, but I found it. This place expects nothing. I'm the customer. They serve me. Here's the point, though. I mean, consumer mentality, all the while, never asking the biblical questions. They don't evaluate the church, this church, that church, or the other church, based upon whether they are built and or are building on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament. They don't choose their church based on whether sound doctrine is being taught and preached, and whether the church has an emphasis on body life, a living organism of being the church. And finally, let me particularly just speak to you younger people being raised up in this church as you will find yourselves in college, out of college, post-college, in life, and wherever God is leading you, and wherever you will find yourself. Do not treat Jesus' church like some bachelor who goes from girl to girl to see what he can get. But seek to marry the church.
seek to be a living stone, molded and shaped to be fitted together with others in the local church, wherever you find yourself. Because Holy Spirit indwell Jesus-loving persons commit to the church. Because it is the household of God. It is His temple. They are here, there, and over there as local churches together. His dwelling place. Because as Paul says in our passage, we have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God Himself by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we beg of You to continue to teach us, to cause us to hunger for the foundation. To never, ever assume it, but to always continually go back to Your Holy Word delivered through Your apostles and prophets. Father, we ask, even fearfully, that You would take us that You would continually place and knit together with other irritating human beings who also love Your Son, that we would be molded and sanctified and chiseled away at, and thus be more and more holy, experiencing the Shekinah glory in our presence. Do it. Glorious Lord Jesus, do it. Amen.